My name is Rafe Chenry. I'm the pastor here at Park South Loop. It's good to be with you guys. We are going to be in Philemon as was just read over us. And isn't it good to have the word read over you like that? Isn't it good to sit and listen to the word read and to hear it and be able to process it? That's an important part of our time together as a family. Before I dig in, I want to take note of one thing. I'm going to pray for our time in the word right now. And uh, last week we prayed and we remembered that uh, as we were celebrating Easter in the kind of comfiness of this room together as a family, uh, that only a few hours prior in Sri Lanka there were horrible attacks that took place throughout the country uh, and on many churches. Uh, This week, once again, uh, we look out over our own country as synagogues who were celebrating the Passover meal, a synagogue, had a shooting take place inside of it. And I want us to just take note of that as a church, that uh, as we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around the globe, uh, attacks on synagogues through our country have actually been more common than they should be. This is obviously more common than they should be. This is a repeated pattern of behavior that we've seen in this country over the last few years. And so I want to pray for our Jewish friends who are experiencing a lot of loss today and uh, pray for our time in the Word. So will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Jesus, it is always hard when it feels sometimes like these stories don't end, like we keep coming back to the same story and keep having to pray the same prayers. Jesus, in this moment, we, <clears throat> we lament over the loss of life that happened in a synagogue as a shooting took place. We thank you for the lives that were saved as stories of heroism are coming out from this weekend as Jewish families were celebrating the Passover meal. God, we thank you that lives were saved. But God, we pray over those families. God, we pray, Jesus, that somehow you would make yourself known in the midst of loss to families who might not know you, God, but are experiencing tremendous grief and pain and brokenness right now and sadness. Jesus, I pray that you would bring comfort to them in some way. I pray that you would point them towards Christ and the cross. God, thank you so much that you are sovereign over all things. We trust you even in the middle of something as devastating as a shooting, which is so hard to even wrestle with in a a house of worship, in a house of religion like this, God. And so, God, I pray for your help. Jesus, as we open your word of God, we pray that our hearts would be turned towards you. God, that we would hear from Christ himself today, that we would be transformed by your word, that you would get all the glory, that we would lift up Jesus in this place. Amen. <clears throat> I know a young man that I was speaking to recently, and I was getting a bit of his story, and he was telling me about the relationship he has with his dad. And uh, this young man, in some ways over the years, had a really good relationship with his dad, and in other ways had a really hard relationship with his dad. There's been sweet moments uh, where it's just been good, and it's been fun. And as he tells the story, there have been just a lot of low points, hard moments, where It's been really tough. The problem is, for him, is that the low points have been so bad that he finds himself in a situation where there's just a lot of wounds in his heart that he still has to wrestle through, and there's just a lot of bitterness that he oftentimes is confronted with. He was telling me recently that there were seasons of his life where he would be on the phone with his dad, and at the end of the conversation, uh, the dad would say to him, hey, I love you, son. And the son, this young man, would have a hard time saying those words back to him. After years had gone by, 
he'd, he'd be on the phone and he'd be that end of the phone call and he would just have a hard time bringing himself to say those three words back. And so he usually would just end up the phone and say, all right, see you later. So much bitterness. You know, we store a lot of bitterness in our hearts, don't we? And you think about it when you kind of wrestle with that level of bitterness and that level of pain and that level of hurt. What, what happens with bitterness in the human heart is that it ends up becoming poison. It ends up becoming poison that does incredibly detrimental things to your life, to your soul, to your well-being, to how you experience community. The reality is, is that forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools the Christian has in their tool belt. Forgiveness changes everything. Forgiveness releases you from that bitterness. Forgiveness releases you from holding on to things that we aren't meant to hold on to, that Jesus wants to hold on to. He wants to put them on his shoulders and free you to move forward, free you to live in the power of the gospel, free you to live in the power of the resurrection. Forgiveness is that key so often that we miss, isn't it? Uh, we, if we're going to be Christians in our day and age, we have to become masters at the art of forgiveness. Absolute masters. This can't be something that we toy with, something that we tinker with. We have to become masters at the art of forgiveness. We're beginning this new sermon series in this book of Philemon. And this little teeny one-chapter book, we just had the whole thing read over us. Every word of it was read by Pam just a moment ago. It's a hidden book. It's stuck between the pages of Titus and Hebrew, and it might be almost unread in your Bibles because we oftentimes don't talk about this book. But in God's kindness, he's given us one entire book that deals primarily with forgiveness. He hasn't left us. He's given us an entire book, that, an entire Bible that deals with forgiveness on many levels. But then we've got an entire book that deals with forgiveness. And what's fascinating about this book is it doesn't deal with forgiveness in kind of theological, doctrinal, laying down of the law principles. It doesn't deal with it in parables. It doesn't deal with it in kind of metaphor and allegory. It deals with it in the very practical relationships that take place in someone's life who is living in the church. It just tells a story. It's a letter from one man to another man giving him instruction on how to forgive and, and what forgiveness ought to be like. It's amazing that God's provided us with this incredible book because so much of what we're going to talk about with forgiveness ultimately gets played out practically in our lives. And we need a practical book like Philemon to wrestle with it. We're going to spend the next three weeks learning about forgiveness through this book in the Bible called Philemon. In week one, that's today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what are the conditions of the heart that must be true of us if we're going to begin to become forgivers, biblical forgivers. What must be true of us if we're going to step into this world of forgiveness and, and actually be able to do something? What has to be the ecosystem of the heart? And then in weeks two and three, we're actually going to study the art of forgiveness. That's what I'm calling it, the art. We could call it the science of forgiveness if you prefer that better. But we're going to look at what it actually looks like practically to begin to release bitterness and to actually forgive somebody. And I just want to tell you, I have been blown away in my preparation for this series absolutely blown away at how much I have to learn personally in my life of what forgiveness looks like. 
So here's my aim for today. I want to take a bit of time and I want to give us a big picture of what this book is about. And then I want to dig into what needs to be true of our hearts if we are going to become people who forgive. So let's dig into these first few verses. And the first few verses, verses 1 to 7 are our primary verses today. And Paul is kind of introducing the entire chapter, the entire letter. Let me read to you verses 1 to 3. Paul prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul introduces himself right out of the gate as the author of this letter. If you remember Paul, Paul wrote much of the New Testament, uh, many of the letters that we studied in this book. Paul was a persecutor of the church, Someone who was killing Christians who God appeared to and converted. And he had this radical conversion where he became an apostle. He experienced tremendous forgiveness himself, didn't he? Isn't that Paul's story? He was someone who was killing Christians. And then he meets Jesus and Jesus utterly forgives him and then writes him a new story. And he introduces himself here as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now Paul was in Rome. We believe he was in Rome at the time under house arrest. A number of the letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote were actually letters that he wrote while under house arrest in Rome. And he's writing there. And why was he in prison? Well, for sharing the gospel of Jesus. The Roman authorities didn't take too kindly to that, that he was propagating and furthering the Christian church and establishing churches all throughout their empire. In some ways, they felt like it was a threat to Caesar, even though that wasn't his message. He wasn't trying to overtake Caesar. But Caesar didn't know what to do with him, and so they put him in prison in Rome. And it's not just allegory. I want to make sure we realize this isn't just metaphorical language like he's saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ and he's not actually in jail. In verse 13, he talks about his imprisonment. He's actually under house arrest in Rome. And he's writing to a man, verse 2, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. He's writing to a man named Philemon who led a church out of his house. Now, it's believed, because of the way that this is written, that Philemon was actually led to Christ through Paul directly. That's actually what most people talk about, and that in some ways Paul introduces himself as Philemon's father. In a way, he helped lead him to Christ And Philemon had a church that met in his house. Now, in the first century, they didn't have big rooms like this where they could gather together on a Sunday like this. Rather, people who owned houses that were big enough to have 10 people or 20 people over, they would host the church in their house. Much like our small groups today that meet throughout the week, that's what house churches looked like in the first century. Philemon was one of these men who hosted a church gathering in his house. And Paul had led him to Christ earlier. Now, to jump beyond our passage, our our section of this book today, let's just jump down and get a big picture of what this entire book is about. We meet a young man named Onesimus. Let me read to you verses 10 to 12. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending back my very heart And then again in verses 15 and 16, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 
Now, what's happening? What's the circumstance here? Onesimus was a bondservant to Philemon. Depending on your translation, it might say slave. Onesimus was a bondservant. He was in servitude to Philemon, working underneath his home. Now, we're going to deal with that concept of slavery or bondservanthood in just a moment. But let me get this story out here. He had run away from his job in Philemon's home. And the story is that Onesimus had a responsibility to Philemon, but he ran away, and some commentators think that he ran away, and in the process he may have even stolen something, because Paul will later talk about that if he owes you something, as in financial, if he stole something from you on the way out. Now, we're not certain if that's the case, but many believe that Onesimus stole something from Philemon when he ran away. Onesimus was probably running from his responsibilities, thought he could gain freedom, ran to Rome, This big, bustling city, much like Chicago, he figured he could just blend in with the crowd and hide and no one would ever find him. But in God's sovereignty, guess who he stumbles across in Rome? Paul. He makes his way over to Paul, who's under house arrest, and Philemon becomes a follower of Christ. Isn't that fascinating how God's sovereignty works? Here's Paul, who had previously brought Philemon to faith, and now Onesimus, a runaway bondservant, runs to Rome, meets Paul, who's in house arrest, and Onesimus puts his faith in Christ. And now there's this situation. What should Onesimus do as a follower of Christ, who's run away from his job back under Philemon's house and has possibly stolen something? Does he go back or doesn't he? Does he confront the situation or does he not? Paul sends Onesimus back with this letter. He says, you as a follower of Christ should go back to Philemon. But send this letter back. Now the question is not only what is Onesimus going to do as a follower of Christ, but what will Philemon do? How will Philemon handle this situation of a, a man who ran away from his job, possibly stole something in the way? Will he forgive Onesimus? Will he treat him harshly? Paul urges Philemon all through this book, not only is he not to treat him harshly, but he's to receive him back as a brother, to give him the dignity of family. Now he is not only your bondservant, says Paul when he comes back, this is your family. That's what this letter is about. Paul urging Philemon to not only forgive, but to establish a brotherhood among him and Onesimus. What an incredible story. So much for us to learn. Now, I want to take a moment here and I want to deal with the issue of bondservanthood or if your translation says slavery. It is so important we wrestle with this so that we understand what Scripture is talking about when it mentions that Onesimus was a bondservant to Philemon. And we could talk for hours in like a classroom setting trying to understand this fully. And So I want to hopefully try to preach this quickly in a way that helps us really wrestle with the text in a meaningful way. I want to equip us right now, and unfortunately throughout history, we have an awful, atrocious, disgusting, horrendous, putrid history in this country in which the Bible was actually used to further American slavery. That's the history that we're walking in. And so when we talk about bondservanthood as it's written in the Bible, we've got to recognize for a moment that this book was used by people like me hundreds of years ago to actually defend and justify actions for slavery in this country. It's horrendous. And I think what oftentimes happens is if you look out over YouTube or you watch people who have problems with Christianity, one of the first things that they'll say is, wasn't the Bible used to justify slavery? And I want you to know, as your pastor, as we navigate through this, that is the furthest thing from the truth that could possibly be. 
If you look actually at the abolition movement, men like Frederick Douglass, men like William Wilberforce, some of the great champions who brought about an end to slavery, both in America and then also throughout Europe, it was books like Philemon. It was books like Ephesians. It was books like, it was the Bible that actually drove the entire abolitionist movement to actually say, let's actually look at what it really says. And what happened is, as people began to believe in the Bible over the course of history, slavery actually was done away with back in the Greco-Roman days. So, let's look into this for just a moment. Slavery, bond servanthood, as we talk about it in the book of Philemon, we must not conflate that with American slavery and the vision that we have of that horrendous institution that was in our country. These were very different things that we're talking about. While there were some similarities, and while there were certainly atrocities that happened within the system and the institution of slavery in the old days, in the historical periods, Slavery or in bond servanthood for many people was a wonderful opportunity. Now that might almost seem a joke to hear because we filter things through our own lens sometimes. But actually in those days, life could be hard in the Old Testament particularly those days if you didn't have a home and you didn't have a way of providing for yourself. Someone who had a home and who had a family and could provide you food and provide you work and could bring you into their home, that was a wonderful option for many people who might not be able to provide for their family and for themselves. Many people, particularly in the Old Testament days, would actually opt into servanthood, bond servanthood, or what we would call slavery, if that's the term we choose, because it was an opportunity for their family. They would get tremendous education within that. And actually, if you look at the Old Testament laws that governed that time period, many people actually, after serving their seven years of, of bond servanthood, of slavery within a, a faithful person's house, they would then actually opt, you're free, and then they would opt to, to stay into that, that situation they were in because it was a good situation for them. God laid down a number of laws that this is how you treat people. You treat them as family. You're never to abuse that power or treat them as less than human in any way. Unfortunately, the history of humanity is that sometimes when there are power differences, there can become tremendous abuses. And that's what we saw take place many times over the history of humanity, over an institution that actually had some helpful purposes in it when you look back into the olden, original uh, days of the Old Testament. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we have a mixed bag of history. We're entering into the Greco-Roman days of history. And in those days, it wasn't quite as clean as the old Mosaic law where God had spoken and said, okay, if you own bondservants, this is how you should treat them. Treat them as family, and they can have jobs and careers, and they can be part of your dinner table. When you get to the Greco-Roman society, it's actually a mixed bag. There were a lot of abuses that were taking place, but there were also many who had wonderful jobs in that society. It was nothing like American slavery, but certainly it wasn't as clean or as easy. And so the question becomes, as a New Testament church, and in those days there would have been no power of the individual to change laws or to try to see systematic changes, and so what did a New Testament Christian who comes to faith, who lives in a situation in which there were bondservants throughout the society, roughly one-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire were indentured servants to one degree or another. How does a follower of Christ step into broken systems like this and actually live out their faith? How would a man like Philemon live out his faith in that situation? How would a man like Onesimus live out his faith in that situation? How do God's people behave within societal structures where there are possibilities for power extortions and for others to be abused? Now that's a question 
we need to be wrestling with today as well, isn't it? And for that, Philemon gives us a lot of interesting words. Paul is not trying to instruct Philemon how to bring about mass socioeconomic political change. What he's trying to do is get to the heart. And he's saying, if I can change your heart, if I can get you to see the gospel in this, if I can show you what Jesus has done, well, that's going to change everything. And actually, as you look at the course of history, it was as Christianity stepped in and kind of took over the Greco-Roman world, that actually, as it became the mainstream, slavery eventually died out because Christians were approaching the entire process through a whole different heart, whereas we sing about on Christmas, the slave is our brother. The indentured servant is treated as a family, and the institution eventually faded. Now, we're going to come back to this theme over and over, but I want to give you some things to equip you to begin to handle that conversation because I know you get that question a lot as a follower of Christ. But today, what I want to focus on is Paul's words to Philemon. What he's going to do in this rest of this letter is he's going to challenge Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away. And Paul is confident that Philemon's going to do just that thing because he's looking at Philemon's character. He's looking at who he is as a man. He's saying, I know these things are true about you. Therefore, when I challenge you to forgive him, it's going to be no problem for you, Philemon, because I've seen these qualities about you. Now, if we can understand these qualities, it will lay a groundwork for us to become forgivers as well. Let's look at these qualities, verses 4 to 7. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul celebrates this particular two qualities of Philemon. And the first one is this, that he is growing in his love and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if that sounds simple, I want to make sure we stick there for just a moment. Paul says about Philemon that he is growing in his love and his faith towards Jesus Christ. Notice how those two words are kind of intricately overlapped. Because I hear of your love and of your faith in the Lord Jesus and towards the saints. It's not just his faith and it's not just his love. But there's this overlappingness that comes about those two words. It's a bit like this. The internal faith that Philemon has in Jesus, that Paul is certain about, is being demonstrated through visual agape love that he's giving towards people all around him. This internal faith is not just something he keeps hidden, but he actually lives it throughout the week. There's a agape-ness. There's a Jesus quality to Philemon's life in the way he's actually loving on people, in the way he's treating people. And it says that you have. He says, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord. That language, it's the present tense. And in, that, in, in the Greek, what that means is he's continuing to have. I, I hear that you daily are living in this reality. This is not just sometimes true of you. It's regularly true of you that you have an internal faith that's lived out visually among everybody around you. Philemon's one of those kind of guys. You know any men or women like that? You ever around somebody where you just know you're around them long enough and you just know, man, they love Jesus. And it's not only their words, it's not just their faith, but you look at them and you say, their life is clearly set on a Jesus track. Jesus got a hold of them and they're loving people radically. It's so clear. You know some of them? Philemon was one of those guys. 
Now, why does forgiveness need to be rooted in Christ? Paul is about to plead with Philemon to forgive, but, but wouldn't we sit here and say, yeah, but anybody can forgive? It's not just Christians that hold the corner on forgiveness, is it? Isn't that a value that just about everybody in society would agree? To some degree, forgiveness is a shared value around the globe, whatever your faith background is. So why is it so important that Philemon's faith in Jesus was central to his ability to forgive? I want to make the argument that it is utterly, vitally central for our ability to forgive. There are a number of variations out there of what forgiveness looks like that when it's not rooted in Jesus Christ can be a distortion while it can share some things true with real biblical forgiveness can be distortions. And I think we see these distortions of forgiveness being lived out all the time. Let me go through three of them. And I, I'm taking these, I'm stealing these a bit from a wonderful book called Forgiven and, for, Forgiven and Forgiving. The first one is this, a false view of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a matter of making nice. Here's what this view is. This is where we simply pretend that everybody has good motivations. That it wasn't that big of a deal. We just got to brush it under the rug. They meant well. I know it stung. I know there's bitterness. But hey, bury that bitterness because they're a good guy. They're a good girl. They didn't mean it all that much. It's not that big a deal. Can we just forgive and forget and move on? You guys know about that version of forgiveness, don't you? You've probably done that many times. Now, what I would argue is that there are actually times where, in some degree, this is helpful. If we get nitpicky, I'm a married man, right? If I get nitpicky over everything, or if my wife got nitpicky over everything we ever did wrong, and we're calling out every little thing, that would be tough. Human relationships, sometimes we have to be able to see the best in each other. But where this whole thing falls apart is that when someone actually wrongs you, when there's true abuse that's taken place, where there's actual pain and bitterness being stored up, and you're sensing, you know, my soul is off kilter with this. I'm not right with the Lord, and I'm not right with that person. Forgiving and forgetting and just moving on and burying it under the rug, well, that's just not going to cut it, is it? It's not going to cut it. See, what that can do to a person who's been abused, if we're just telling them, hey, just deal with it, they're a good person, okay? They didn't mean it as much. I know it, I, it, you, I know it seems like it hurt, but they didn't mean it that bad. What you can do is you can rob a person of their dignity. And you know this happens in the church all the time? We have an atrocious history of this publicly as a big C church in this country. How many women have come forward and said that there has been some kind of sexual abuse that's been taking a place within the church? And what's been the message that's been said over and over again? Oh, just, it's not that big a deal. Let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's have a private conversation, not actually deal with it. And so what happens? You bury it. You bury it. All of a sudden, we've robbed women of their voice. I could talk, and that's not just the only area where we do this. This happens all throughout the church. And one of the reasons we do it is because we want to be a church. We, we want to save face, so to speak. We, we want to have a good image on the outside. And then we think, man, if we just brush it under the rug, it's like forgiveness, right? We just forgive and move on. Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? We rob ourselves of biblical forgiveness. Nobody confronts. Nobody actually steps into the brokenness and deals with it. That is not real forgiveness. False view number two, forgiveness through social manipulation. Oh, 
This is what we see every day. Here's what forgiveness through social manipulation is. We see forgiveness, both as the abuser and the victim, as a chance to have the spotlight and people to see how wronged we are or how changed we are. And so we take the moment of forgiveness as a public spectacle. And we say, hey, let's go big with this. If I'm an abuser, I can make a big deal about how changed I am publicly. I can be real broken in front of you. I can say, hey, I'm a changed person, right? For, will you forgive me for how broken I've been? And if you're a really good actor, you can basically have no heart change and get everyone to think you're the best guy in the entire world. We see that play out all the time, don't we? Even on the victim side, we can see this. Oftentimes, those who have been abused or those who have been wronged against, when they make a public spectacle of the situation, what they're actually doing is trying to draw attention to themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. When it comes to those who have been abused, I want to make sure that they have their voice heard, that it gets out there. But I also want to look at the heart. Sometimes it can actually be about building this person and making them the spotlight and looking at how broken they've become. Both people can end up using this as a public spectacle. And this is all about ego. Forgiveness here is an act. It's a public declaration to save face. There's very little genuine heart change or transformation that's taking place. They're just getting through a moment, and this is all about self-image and self-maintenance. Sound familiar? Have you done this? False view number three, forgiveness through penance. This is where the person who's done the wrong feels like they are in a never-ending sense of trying to earn their way back into right standing with everybody. They have to earn their way out of it. I, I know I've done wrong, and now I'm so broken about it. You know, you know, if you ever meet somebody who is truly broken over something they've done, they usually fall into this category. Sometimes when you look at people who are just radically broken, they're in this never-ending cycle of penance with themselves, where they just don't feel like they deserve anything. They don't feel like they could be anybody that deserves a life. They know what they've done, and they just live in a cycle of hell over and over and over again, just feeling like they'll never earn their way out. What, what right did they have to step forward and begin living under the fullness of real forgiveness? That's not a right they have. I'm just stuck in penance, trying to earn my way. We feel that. Some in this church are in that cycle right now. And the reason for that is because when we recognize the level of sin in our life and we really realize what's happened to us and what we've done, we're so ashamed of it. And then when it becomes a public spectacle, when someone actually hears what we've done and it gets out from the quietness of our, of our home and it gets out from the quietness of our mind and our, our dark secrets kind of get out there, then we're just so ashamed. And we live in the reality of shame and we just bury it and we say, well, that's just who I am. I can't move, ever move forward from this. And we don't actually ever receive forgiveness when it comes. Forgiveness through penance cripples us. If you think you got to earn your way forever back into right standing and there is no hope, that is a broken situation. This can be so powerful in a person's life. 
But this is why real biblical forgiveness is so important. This is why Paul looks at Philemon. And before he ever gets into the practicals of forgiving Onesimus for what he did, and before he ever gets into with Onesimus of dealing with what it looks like for Onesimus to be a forgiver as well, before he ever deals with that, he looks at the heart of Philemon and he says, Philemon, your heart is ripe. It is ripe to be a forgiver. I want to see this forgiveness lived out in you and it's ripe because you love Jesus. Jesus has changed you. See, when you know Jesus Christ, you have a glimpse of what real, true forgiveness looks like, right? That's the central message of the Christian faith, isn't it? Jesus has gone to the cross on our behalf. Sinners like us who have broken every one of God's commands. Jesus has gone to the cross and taken all of that weight and debt that we owe to God on his own shoulders. And he's offered us radical forgiveness. And he didn't just brush it under the rug, did he? He didn't just say, it's not a big deal. He didn't just say, hey, you're sinners and no biggie. Let's just move on. We don't need to confront it. We don't need any brutal honesty. No, he went to the cross. See, he, he, he actually moved into our brokenness. We're going to get to that theme next week. He moved into our brokenness with us. He felt the pain of the cost of being a sinner, of being a broken person, and then he did something about it. He sacrificed himself on the cross that we could have life in full, literally shedding his blood in our place, giving us forgiveness, breaking that cycle of penance that we feel we have to earn righteousness through moral superiority with God. No, it's done away with in Jesus. Jesus has fully forgiven, not by brushing it under the rug, by dealing with it in its brutal reality, stepping it into it on our behalf, and then offering forgiveness as grace. As grace. Free, undeserved. In fact, we deserve the opposite. And he says, I want you to experience the power of grace in your life. I want you to know what it's like to have that debt and that weight removed from your shoulders because you are broken, but I've taken it from you. That's what Jesus offers. And that's the central message of Christianity. Now, what does this do if we get this? How does this lay a foundation for forgiveness? Well, number one, it equalizes the playing field, right? That means there's nobody in this room who can look at anybody else in their brokenness and say, man, I'm better than you. No, no, no. See, see, we all are sinners in the hands of a sovereign God. Every one of us is broken. You can never look down your nose at somebody else and think, how could they do that? See, that's just misunderstanding the gospel. When we see other people in their brokenness, there's some kind of brotherhood here where we all fall in this sinful human condition. This doesn't mean we're all as bad as we can be or we all have the exact same issues, but it means we're all sinners with our own issues. And number two, it holds out the hope for true redemption, doesn't it? Because if God can forgive a sinner like me, how much more can I forgive a sinner like any of you? See, if God can do that work with me and the stuff I've done, how much more can we give out love as those who have received forgiveness of somebody else? See, follower of Christ always hold this hope of redemption and restoration over other people's lives. Even in the most darkest, deepest moments of pain, well, that doesn't mean, and we're going to deal with this more, it doesn't mean that victims, those who are being abused, have to sit and just stay in a cycle of abuse and just stay there because they're offering forgiveness. No, we deal in brutal honesty like Jesus did. As a community, we step in, we remove, we make sure there's safety, we deal with it head on and there's consequences for sin, but we always, as a community, hold out redemption and hope, no matter how broken they are. Let me ask you something. Who in your life do you feel right now is beyond hope for redemption? 
I got those people in my life. I'm a human too. You look out and you think, man, they are just, I just can't see it, God. And you know what that is? It's just not getting the gospel. It's my blindness. It's me looking out and being like, I'm better than you. It's me looking out and thinking, look at how good I am and look at how bad you are. God got the right guy when he picked me. That's not the gospel. God saved a sinner like me. God saved a broken man like me. Praise God, that was a free gift of grace. Forgiveness is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. The second thing, and I have not saved myself enough time to dig into this adequately, so we're going to come back to it. But let me read this next verse here. It says this, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because of, I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And then he says in verse 7, For I have derived much joy, or I'm sorry, verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That word sharing of your faith, it sounds like he's talking about the way you talk about Jesus to other people. It sounds like it's evangelism, the sharing of your faith. That word is the Greek word koinonia. That's an important word. I know it's a Greek word, but you guys should all know the word koinonia. It means Christian fellowship. He says, I pray that the the fellowship you have with other brothers and sisters in Christ would be powerful and effective in your life. See, the the second condition of the human heart is that not only do we need to love Jesus, but we need to love Jesus' church. That's the second condition. If you are failing to love Jesus' church, if you're failing to be part of a biblical community where there's authenticity and vulnerability and true Christian fellowship and forgiving of one another and doing life together, you're never really going to learn what forgiveness looks like because this is the safest place in the world to experience real forgiveness. This is where everyone is saying, I've been changed by Jesus, you've been changed by Jesus, now let's do this crazy thing called faith together. See, when you're part of biblical fellowship like that, it does two things. Number one, you can't hide from your sin and brokenness. See, anyone who's close enough to me knows that I'm a pretty goofy guy and knows that I still got a lot of work to do in my life. Just like anyone who's close enough to you knows that you're pretty goofy too and you still got a lot of work to do in your life. I'm not the only one. We're broken and we're in need of help. And we're on this journey together. But it's only when you're in that authentic space where you're actually open with people where you're in their homes and you're talking about your issues and you're forgiving and you're, and, you're, and you're working through it biblically with Jesus at the center, that's where there's power. See, if you just come in here on a Sunday and then go home and you don't know anybody here, there's no re- real like touch points, there's no life. If, if church is just a place you go and then you pop out and you hide, ugh, this is going to be tough for you to live out. I don't know where you're going to have opportunity to do any of this. Because what you can do is be one person here and then just go be someone else over there. Never deal with it. Never have any vulnerability with each other. And number two, when you're in Christian fellowship, it produces the grounds for reconciliation. Here's the one place where broken people can actually mess up. You know that we can mess up in this space? And we can come over here and find true accountability and help in our brokenness because we're sinners in the hands of a God who's given us all grace. And we all hold hope out for one another. Followers of Christ are rooted in Jesus and rooted in his church. That's the ecosystem of the heart. That's where Paul roots all of this. And that's where we've got to root ourselves today. These two things, an increasing love of Jesus and an increasing love of his church, As I close, 
I want to bring us back to that opening story I told you of that guy. The guy who had a hard time saying I love you to his dad. That's me. That's my story. I still work through a lot of that. Years of that phone call. Saying it just the way I told you. I'm sharing that with you now because when I'm preparing for Philemon and I'm studying this and I think about forgiveness, this is real. There's not one person in this room who's got this figured out. There's not one person in this room who is not holding bitterness towards somebody. There's not one person in this room who doesn't have someone in their life that they need to learn what it means for the gospel to actually impact that relationship, to submit an entire broken system to the gospel of Jesus and say, what would you do with this? You're making all things new. I know you are, but it's hard. It's broken. I don't even want to go there. And yet the gospel commands me to go there. He commands me. I can't not go there. I'm a follower of Christ. If I just hold this all the time, I'm holding poison in my soul. And that's what we're doing so many times. I want to invite you with me to be on this journey together. I'm so hopeful studying this book because we have so much to learn. And if Christians can hold the corner on anything, if we can hold the corner on anything, it's forgiveness. Amen? If we can hold the corner in this crazy society where everyone has literally forgotten what forgiveness looks like, it's this. This is the one thing we can do better than everybody else is love people so radically that we extend the gospel of forgiveness to them. I want to invite you on this journey with me. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we bow our heads to you right now and we confess that this is big. We need so much grace in working through this because if we really read the Bible and we really apply it, then you're going to be opening caverns of our heart that we do not want to even go close to. But this is the space to do it. And so God, I pray for your help. I pray for your grace in working through this. I pray for your power in working through this. I pray that you would mobilize this church to be the most radical forgivers that we've ever seen that something would just get into this place and we would just, you know, this is what we'd be known for, that we'd be dealing with issues here in openness and moving forward in the gospel that forgives us. I pray for your power in Jesus' precious name. Amen.